So our theme is everything we need, taken right out of the first verses of Second Peter. We're going through Second Peter uh, in our trip through the summer, and uh, we're in chapter one. Allison Smith and her family are somewhere in the room. Where are you all? All right, it's good to see them as well. Some more former staff families. It's great to have you here this morning. Hello, Christian George. It's great to see you too, professor at Midwestern. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn over to 2 Peter. And let me just refresh your memory again. 2 Peter is about growing up in your faith. So you want to watch for teaching that will help you grow in your walk with God. It's about being careful of false doctrine. So we're going to be warned about that as we go through the text because not everything you hear is true. Sometimes even teachers are not faithful to the Word of God. And then thirdly, he wants us to keep our eye on the second coming of Jesus, on the culmination of all things in Christ. So just realize that God is bringing everything to its proper conclusion in Jesus. And that purpose of God is not going to be frustrated no matter what happens in the interim. Sometimes we are frustrated and sometimes we are disappointed with the condition of things as they are. Sometimes we are even anxious and maybe fearful about the future. Not to be. Not to be. The future is in the hands of a God who loves us, who sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. And so He's going to bring everything just like it ought to culminate, it will in Christ. So that's the lesson that Peter is teaching us, along with growing in faith and staying true in our teaching. So I'm starting in verse 10, and just to remind you about last week's message, we looked at eight essential vitamins that started with faith, and then you add things like goodness and knowledge and uh, Uh, self-control and temperance and godliness and mutual affection, and you ended with love. So you had these eight qualities that started with faith and ended with love. And he says you need to add these things to your faith so that you will not be ineffective and unproductive in your walk in the Lord. In other words, to be fruitful and useful, you need to have these qualities growing in your life in increasing measure happening, and that's the context by which he says in verse 10, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things things. So Peter's thinking about his home going. He's thinking about his exodus. In in fact, he's talking as if he is in a journey, which all of us are. Some of us are taking trips. I have a tip for you from a traveler named Kevin, who says if you really want to have great 
photographic records of your trip by a little cover that changes the lens of your smartphone into a wide-angle lens. It says it only costs about a dollar, and it can really enhance the pictures you get from your smartphone. And he says then what you're going to need is a narrative clip-on. It's a camera that you clip on to your clothing somewhere, and it takes a picture every 30 seconds. It's just a little bitty thing. When you get home, you can look at what pictures you've got, all right? So some of them are going to be throwaway, and they've even got a logarithm that throws them away if they're no good. So you can get back and look on your computer, and he says the third thing you're really going to need for photographic information about your trip is a 360 cam. They make these now where you can just hold it up and click, and it takes a 360. So if me and I were at Jackson Hole today where she wishes she was sometimes, you know, back there again where she served the Lord so long. You could take a picture of Jackson Hole behind you and the Grand Tetons in the front of you, and you'd have that 360. So that sounds like an interesting idea for a traveler. What the Apostle Peter is doing right off the bat is saying, I want to correct your vision. I want you to confirm who you really are. Put on the lens of your true self. These apostles, Peter included, marveled every day at how God loved them and who he made them in Christ. And so when Peter introduces this epistle, he says, I'm a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus. Can you believe it? A humble fisherman who is a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus. And John says, look how great a love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. This is the lens through which they saw themselves loved by God, lavished with that love, children of God. The apostle Paul says, we are heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ of all the Father has for him, joint heirs with Christ. So, Paul and Peter and John, they all join together to talk about this lens we need to see ourselves the way we truly are. Confirm who you really are. Confirm your calling and your election. We confirm our calling and election, folks, with our behavior every day. Say, we know that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. But if we're not walking our talk, we begin to wonder about us. There are probably people sitting here who at one time were fervent in faith and serving the Lord, and you fell away for one reason or another. You got discouraged. Hello, Dr. Pounds. Nice to see Dr. Jerry Pounds and Bain. Great to see them as well. You got discouraged in the Lord, and you started thinking, am I, really, am I really in faith? John had this uh, word from Jesus that he recorded, uh, or, or John says, hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. It's not, this is how we know him. It's how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Confirming your calling and election is about you behaving in a way that conforms to your confession. 
so that your actions match your words. If you get out of line this next week and you succumb to the temptation that comes our way every week and you do something that you know is wrong, that you know is self-destructive or hurtful of others, that you know is ungodly or not according to God's plan for you, if you do that, there may be a moment when you say, how could I even be a Christian and act this way? I can't rescue you, nor can anybody else, from the doubts that come into your mind when your actions don't conform to your confession. You're not saved by those actions. You're saved by the grace of God through faith in Him. And that's it. You can't work hard enough or be good enough to find a place in heaven. That's only coming through the grace of the Lord Jesus and what He did that we remembered at this table. But the scripture does teach that we need to confirm our calling and our election right here by how we live in the world every day. And manifesting these qualities that he has talked about are very important. So in myself, I have confidence in my calling and election as I walk it out day by day. My, my spouse and my children have confidence in the profession I make in Christ as I live it out day after day, as I exercise these qualities from faith to love and goodness and knowledge, and these are in increasing measure in me. My children have confidence in my grandchildren, my neighbors and others that are watching me, that I am indeed in Christ, that what I say with my lips is really true in my life. So I'm confirming my calling and election by the behavior Even the world out there, when you go to work and people know you're a member of First Baptist Church or you claim to be a Christian, they are watching you to see how you live. And if you mess up, they may point it out to you. That's happened to some of you where you've messed up in some way and they say, hey, wait a minute, I thought you said you were a Christian because they're watching you to see if your behavior conforms to your confession. Now, brothers and sisters, please... I beg you, make sure your behavior conforms to your confession. Make sure that you are confirming this calling you got from God to be his child. This fact that you've been chosen by him. Make sure you're confirming it every day by your behavior. It's so important because you undercut the testimony of this congregation of faith out there in the community if if your behavior contradicts your confession in Jesus. You undercut the testimony of our church. You undercut the gospel which we preach and which we teach if we behave in ways that contradict our confession. So, confirm who you really are and live as the new creature that God has made you. If you do these things, he says, you will never stumble. I had to think about that a while. Graham, the three-year-old, stumbled this last week. I mean, he hit his big toe in his right foot, and he got a blood blister on that toe, and he tumbled down, and his left knee hit first, and he scratched it and started to bleed. If he sees blood, he just goes nuts, all right? So he went nuts, and he had to go get bandaged up, and everybody had to hug him and kiss on him and love him for about 30 minutes, and then he was back at it. That's... See, that's how I usually see stumbling. The Scripture says a righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. We all stumble and we all fall. 
What's different about a person of faith, somebody who's trusted in Christ, is they have perseverance. They have tenacity. They have determination. It's part of faith. So I'm speaking now to somebody who may be lying flat on the tarmac after this last week. Maybe you thought you were the king of the hill, and now you're at the bottom of the hill. Get up, sister. Get up, brother. Your failure is not final. This word here is about stumbling where you have no hope. That's how I understand this. And there's nobody in this room who has stumbled or fallen so badly that you have no hope left in Christ. You have hope in Christ for recovery from the disaster that has come upon you, whether it's financial or family or whatever it might be. If it is a moral disaster that has come upon you, a character disaster, you can recover. There's hope for you. There's a future for you. I'm so glad that as a pastor I can tell people that when they come to see me and I hear about something terrible that has happened or maybe something terrible that they've done and all of a sudden their life is in a whole different place and I can tell them there are no dead ends in the grace of God. God is able to take the life that you have, the circumstances that you're in, God can work all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if you're flat on the tarmac, it's time to start getting up. No point in laying there. God has a job for you to do. He's got a future for you. No matter what the disaster has been, no matter how terrible it seems, there is a future for you in the grace of God. You claim it. You say, Lord... I'm going to claim my future. And in determination, you adhere to the faith that God has given you. All right, so we put on this lens to confirm who we really are. And then anticipate your rich welcome. This rich welcome into the eternal kingdom that he talks about has a conditional element to it. All right? We have unconditional love from God. Everybody in the room should understand that. We are anchored in grace and we are saved by faith. But the scripture indicates here as well as many other places that there are some things that are contingent, that are conditional. And it is illustrated by the uh, words of Jesus where he talked about wood, hay, and stubble. Some people are saved so as by fire, the Scripture says. When they get to heaven, they're smelling like smoke. And everything that they did really was just worthless and burned up, and they didn't have any gold, silver, and precious stones. So what Peter is saying to us and to his readers is practice these qualities. Get them in your life. Live out your confession. Be faithful in your behavior. And when you get to heaven, you're going to have this Wonderful welcome, and it's going to be enriched by your behavior in this life. We live for Christ because He has saved us, and in order that we might hear His well done when we step into His presence. Now, He says we're going to have this rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, and He uses a word, kingdom that is a political word. It has the word king actually in it. 
And kingdom would describe most of the government jurisdictions of the first century. Most of them were dictators or kings or Caesars, whatever. And so they were ruled by a single person who had absolute authority. And that's the idea behind kingdom. The apostle Paul was very uh, proud of his Roman citizenship. And he mentioned it on a number of occasions. He was glad to be a Roman citizen. In fact, when he was mistreated in Philippi, he mentioned to them that he was a citizen of Rome, and all of a sudden Philippi, which really respected Roman citizenship, those guys were afraid to beat him and throw him in jail because he was a Roman citizen. He was proud of his Roman citizenship even though he never got a vote. He didn't get to vote for the local authorities or for the, the uh, authorities in Rome. It was a totalitarian government, but he still appreciated his citizenship, and he told us that we're to obey the authorities that are over us, even in a totalitarian regime. Think about falling on your knees and praying for Caesar or King Herod. Now, you live in a wonderful country. Most of you are citizens of these United States. Some of you are citizens of elsewhere, and I understand that, but many of us are citizens of these United States. We're in this weekend of celebration where we remember the founding of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, signed on July 4th, 1776. And we have this amazing stewardship as God's people in this particular country. It's not a kingdom, it's a democracy. And we can vote, and our vote can make a difference. If you don't think the vote makes a difference, think about the Brexit that happened in the United Kingdom just last week. That was the Brits standing up and saying, we're going to do this different. We don't care what you leaders say. And they threw a bunch of them out. Well, the United States is a democracy. And you have the stewardship of the vote. You are a steward of money. You are a steward of resources. You are a steward of talents. You are a steward of position. And you are a steward of your citizenship, and that's really, really important. When I come around to July 4th, I think about the things that the Declaration of Independence says. Things like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. By their creator with certain unalienable rights. We have enshrined in our Constitution, in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That is, you can't have a favorite religion in America favored by the government or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The federal government cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. That's called religious liberty. And the, the First Amendment goes on to guarantee us freedom of speech and of the press and of assembly. These are precious liberties. But listen to what the Declaration of Independence said. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. It comes from the Creator and the the founders of the government said, any legitimate government will recognize these rights that are human rights that are given by the Creator. And it is a violation of the human being to take from him the freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of assembly. These are given to him by the Creator God. 
In other words, they're not in doubt upon us necessarily by government so much as by the Creator Himself. Think about that. I'm so glad I could stand up here with a Bible in my hand and Sunday after Sunday proclaim that Jesus is Lord, inviting people to trust Him as Savior, and nobody comes in the doors to arrest me for doing so. I tried to witness in the public square in Havana. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, really, and the guys that were my friends ran up to me, the fellows in Havana. This was in 1991, and they said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come here, come here, come here. And they whispered and said to me, you can't do this here. The group, they had a group that did this last week, and they arrested them all and threw them in jail. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And they said, we'll show you. So they had a meeting that night, and they said, we don't want you to invite anybody to the meeting. I said, I won't, because I, I, I can't navigate this. But the believers in, in Havana knew how to invite people, and they filled up a house with people, and they said, okay, preach. And so I stood up and preached in this house in Havana, and 14 people in that room trusted Jesus as Savior. I'll never forget it. In fact, I just met a lady who said that I preached in one of the churches there, and I did, and her father remembered me preaching at the church in Havana back in 1991. But they didn't have government freedom religion. They were in this narrow channel where they could only teach publicly what was approved. Celebrate your religious liberty. It is fundamental to what it means to be an American and what it means to be a Baptist, incidentally. You're at First Baptist Church, Baptists have been champions of religious liberty since their inception. When we first started, we were a little minority, and they beat up on Baptists and threw them in jail. And we say, wait a minute, you can't do this. Every government should recognize that people have freedom of religion, to worship as they see fit. And finally, the Baptist viewpoint, along with the Enlightenment viewpoint, prevailed. And in the documents of our country, we have enshrined this amazing thing that there is no religious test for office. Now, some people think that's too much freedom. You shouldn't let people have freedom of religion. They might do bad things. That's too much freedom. And so they say of the speech and of the press and of assembly. That's too much. Well, how do you want to limit it? Well, my group. Just let my group do it. If you let my group do it, I'm happy. Don't let these other groups. They don't know the truth. Don't let them talk. As soon as you silence somebody else, you are threatening your own liberty. You remember this. Religious liberty is for all or it's for none. Amen. You silence one group and you say, oh no, that's, a, that's illegal. You can't worship that way anymore. And pretty soon they're coming for you, brother. You don't give to the government the power to regulate freedom of religion. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I can't emphasize this. Young people, this is a great stewardship. It was a great idea at the beginning of our nation, and it's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful way to run a government. I wish, wish every government in this planet had freedom of religion like is practiced here in these United States. 
And anytime it is threatened, and sometimes there's a threat to religious liberty, and we have threats right now in the courts. We need to get out there and fight for religious liberty in our land and insist that freedom of conscience is fundamental to all other freedoms. Now, Tuesday, I'm going to be on a talk show with Garland Robinette on Radio 870 AM, and it's at 1130, and you can pray for me, okay? He called me and said, I want to talk about religious liberty. I want you to be a guest, and I want to talk about Muslims and mosques in America. I want to tell you, religious liberty covers Islam and mosques. And if you manage to get the law to zone out a mosque, it will soon zone out your Baptist church. I'm going to talk about this on Tuesday, and I want you to pray for me. And I know some of you are thinking, oh my, that's dangerous, that's dangerous business. But I want you to know, when we were a minority as Baptists, and we didn't have government authority and politicians that that looked after us. We were thrown in jail and persecuted for our faith, and we insisted that religious liberty was the best way to go. And when Roger Williams left Massachusetts, where they did not really have religious liberty, and he founded Rhode Island, he said there's going to be no religious test for, Rhode Island, uh, for uh, office in Rhode Island. And he founded the first Baptist church on American soil. And he sent out the invitation. For anybody who wanted to come to be part of the colony of Rhode Island, he invited Congregationalists, Baptists, Muslims, Catholics, and atheists to come to Rhode Island. And he founded a colony where there was true religious liberty. Now, We are citizens of a nation that guarantees this in our Constitution. And we must be vigilant in this day and in the days to come that we insist that though there are parameters and sometimes there are tensions between our security and our freedom, that freedom comes from God, freedom of conscience and religious liberty, that these things are endowed by the Creator upon the human family. And we need to protect them in our nation. Paul was very proud of his citizenship. I know that you are as well proud to be a part of these United States of America or maybe if you are a citizen of another country, that country where you are a citizen. And the Apostle Paul talked about this in Philippi when they arrested him and they gave him a whole new path because he was a Roman citizen. But when he wrote back to Philippi, he said to them, he said to these Philippians who valued their Roman citizenship so highly, he said, our citizenship is in heaven from where we're expecting the Savior. Even though he valued his Roman citizenship, he valued his citizenship into heaven beyond anything, and that's what Peter's doing here. 
Although Peter urges us to pray for people in authority, eventually he is executed by the very authority for whom he prayed. And so part of his pilgrimage is saying, I am going to depart as the Savior has told me. And we find in the end of John's gospel where Jesus says about Peter, when you get old, somebody's going to take you where you don't want to go. And John says in his gospel, by this statement, Jesus was talking about the death he was to die that would bring glory to God. And Peter now remembers that here in this text I've just read. And he says, I'm going to have a departure. And the word departure in the Greek is the word exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. It's the story of where the Hebrews came out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Peter sees his departure that way. His death is coming up. He's going to lay aside this temporary dwelling, this tent he's been in. And he's going to take his exodus and go to the eternal kingdom which God has promised him. More than anything else... We are temporarily citizens of some jurisdiction on this planet. But we are permanently citizens of the eternal kingdom. Citizens of heaven from where we expect our Savior to come. Your citizenship in heaven is the true you. There are many things about the citizenship even now that you may say, well, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable about, about these things. It doesn't feel just or right the way these things happen in our country. And so all of us are like strangers and aliens. We look for our home on this planet. And sometimes we feel like we don't have a home. I tell you where your home is. If you're troubled and upset about politics and the condition of the world, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Ultimately, you know where your home is? It's the Father's house. You've got a father who loves you more than you ever knew. And your home is there with him. You have eternal home in heaven. It is the eternal kingdom to which the apostle refers. And more than anything else, you want to make sure that by faith you have received the grace of the Lord Jesus that changes you from simply an earthly dweller to a kingdom person a member of the family of God. Let's bow together. As we bow our heads, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, if you couldn't say today, well, I know my citizenship is in heaven, you could settle that matter today as the Holy Spirit draws you unto God. And if you're prompted and drawn by the Holy Spirit, you could pray right now, dear Lord, I want to be a citizen of heaven. I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe he rose from the dead, and I receive him as Lord. Would you pray that prayer right now? As best you know how, surrendering your life 
to the God who loves you, trusting in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Father, we pray today that by your Holy Spirit you will guide us, guide our steps, plant in us the faith that we need to trust you, to pray to you, to receive Jesus. Help us to hear your voice and know that we are called and chosen. God, I pray you'll help us respond to this great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.